you can open up to James chapter 4, if you're not already there. One of the interesting things about preaching week in and week out, preparing a sermon every week uh, to, uh, to preach, is there are, there are times where you know, you're, you're coming to the next passage of Scripture, which, you know, we preach expositionally here at Woodhaven and try to understand each passage in context and then move to the next passage. We think that that's the way the Bible demands to be taught and explained and best understood. And so it's interesting when you do that because sometimes you come to a passage of Scripture and you read it and you think, man, this, this almost seems irrelevant to daily life. I'm, I'm not really sure how this is going to apply to my life this week. And of course it will, and it, it does, and maybe in ways that aren't immediately evident, but it requires a little bit of extra thinking and reading and work to try to consider how this makes a connection to daily life and how I should change as a result of reading this passage. Our passage for this week is decidedly not one of those passages. If you noticed the title of the sermon for this week, it's If 2020 Has Taught Us Anything. I think that this text could be the theme passage for this entire year. How many of you woke up on January 1st of this year and thought, you know, I bet that the normal course of life is going to be disrupted this year to the point where our kids will be doing school virtually beginning in March, sports will be canceled and postponed, NFL games in the fall will be in empty stadiums, thousands of people will lose their jobs, businesses will close. I think we'll probably be meeting outside as a church from June through at the end of September on the parking lot. And all of those disruptions and changes are only things that have to do with the COVID pandemic. I haven't even mentioned any of the other events that have happened in 2020, any of the other cultural disruptions. And to top it off, we still have a presidential election in about a month that's coming up. That'll sort of round the year out nicely, I think. <laughs> Now, I hope that this year hasn't been completely to you one giant frustration. I mean, I know that for all of us there have been disruptions and there have been frustrations and difficulties in this year, and some people have experienced those greater than others, but I do hope that through 2020 that, that God has grown you. I, I hope that he has shown you areas of life that need to change in ways of viewing the world and of moving through life that need to be altered. I hope that during this year that there have been areas where, where you have grown to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ because of the difficulties that we've experienced this year. Yeah. 
control of our lives. And we very often arrogantly live as if we are. We're not in control of our lives, and this year has made that evident. There are things that are happening that are so far out of our control, it's mind-numbing, and it's frustrating. And it should be evident from this year and evident from this passage of Scripture that we're not in control of our lives, but we so often live in small and in big ways as if we are in control. And we respond to events as if we are the ones who are responsible and as if we are the ones who are in control. And so in this passage this morning, James is going to define the problem for us in verse 13. So we're going to read the problem that he's addressing in verse 13. And then in verses 14 through 17, he's going to lay out for us four reasons to avoid arrogantly planning without God. Alright, so we're going to look at the problem in verse 13. And then he's going to lay out for us four reasons to avoid arrogantly planning, setting expectations and plans for the future without God and based solely in ourselves. So let's look at the problem here. And this is a problem that we so often fall into. And again, I, I don't think we realize it most of the time. And maybe 2020 has helped to bring this out in significant ways. And then we're going to get to the four reasons in verses 14 17. So look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade. of his or her own life. 
They set the agenda. And they do it apart from God and apart from considering his will and his plans and his word. This statement in verse 13 is the definition of planning based on earthly wisdom. Wisdom that is selfish and prideful and, and earthly in its origins. I mean, you'll see this later, but James clarifies to us what's wrong with this sort of planning in verse 16. Why don't you just look down there with me and we'll come back to this verse. But verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I mean, this is the problem with the perspective given in verse 13. We'll get back to it. But right now, if you look at this passage, or in verse, this verse in verse 13, I want to look at a little more detail exactly what this person is doing and planning for the future in the different areas in which they're making plans without God. Self-confident plans. I mean, the first part of it, he says, today or tomorrow. Right? So this person is planning, is setting an agenda. They believe that, that time, in some sense, is under their control. They're expecting to even be around or to do things tomorrow or the next day, and they base that in themselves rather than in God. The second thing is they believe they can go wherever they want to go. They can choose where they will live and what they're going to do. It says they'll go into such and such a town. Third, they think they can be determining what they'll be doing. They'll go into such and such a town and they'll trade. They'll, they'll do business transactions. They'll have a job. They believe they ultimately can be the one who determines that and they set the agenda for that. And then the last part of this, they even believe that they can ensure financial success. They know that if they do this according to their own plans and their own agenda, they're going to make money. See, at the end of this verse, it says that they're going to make a profit. Now, my guess is that many of us fall into planning without God in some of these areas. We decide what we're going to do today or tomorrow or even the next five or ten years. We base that in ourselves, in our own agenda, in our own plans, our own desires. We choose where we're going to live. We decide what we will be doing for work or for play or hobbies. We even think we can decide and choose to have financial success, and we're confident that we're going to reach that. We're sure of it, because we're the ones doing it. Now again, the problem's not planning for the future. It's not having goals and pursuing those goals, but it's in assuming that we have any sort of control over what's going to happen. It's in imagining that we can be sure of what we're doing and that we can plan for the future and not submit our plans and our goals and our lives to the authority of God's word. It's in setting our own ambitions rather than planning with God's priorities in mind. That's the problem in the statement in verse 13. And so if that's the problem that James explains to us, then why should we avoid this sort of arrogant planning? I mean, why do we want to stay away from this and planning without God, arrogantly planning based on self? Well, there are four reasons to avoid this. I want to convince you to avoid planning like this for the future. These are in verses 14 to 17. I think you could say this another way. What have we learned from the year 2020? The 
first reason to avoid this is because life is short. Life is short. Verse 14. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We have way too high an opinion of ourselves. We're way too self-confident. And James confronts that pride right at the beginning of verse 14. I mean, we often plan and assume that we know what's going to happen today, this afternoon, tomorrow. But, but really, we have no idea. We don't know. You and I have no concept of what's going to happen in the hours after we leave church this afternoon. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, we can kind of make good guesses about it, but really, we don't know what's going to happen we can't possibly know the future because human existence, our lives here are finite and they are short. And this may be like a, a cup of cold water dumped on you this morning, but this is one of those biblical truths that you and I have to reckon with. And we have to consider this as we think about the future and as we plan for the future. We are all much less significant than we think we are. We're just not as important as we imagine that we are. And James makes that quite clear in the rest of verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Look there, he asks this question. What is your life? We think about that question for a second. What is your life? What actually is this thing that you have been given? Well, what does the Bible say is the answer to that question. Well, interestingly enough, the Bible does portray your life as the most valuable thing you have as a human being. I mean, listen to Matthew 16 and verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, it's clear that your life is actually the most valuable thing that you and I have. There's nothing more important. No financial resources, no material gains are more important than your life. You would not trade any of that for, for your life. But what's interesting in the question that James asks is, even though that is true and your life is the most valuable thing you have, when you set your single human life against the course of history and against the character of God, it's short and it's temporary and it's finite and in many ways it's, it's insignificant. Look how James describes it in verse 14. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. One of the things we love about living in Michigan is obviously how many lakes there are. And we've stayed this summer with Bethany's family uh, on, on one of the lakes in northern Michigan. And I know that most of you or all of you have done this before, but if you get up early and look out over the lake, often you will see mist rising up over the lake early in the morning, and it's beautiful. But there's, there's really not much to that mist, is there? I mean, if we got on the boat and started to go across the lake, the mist would 
this morning. It's not to make you feel, feel terrible about the shortness of your life. The Bible actually says that recognizing this truth is the pathway to wisdom. This is something that we have to reckon with and we have to know. And we won't grow in wisdom until we do. The psalm I read this morning, Psalm 90, I read that for a particular reason because it addresses this. Psalm 90 verses 10 through 12. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What is your life? I mean, who's to say that we will all be back here again next Sunday worshiping together? Who's to say that we will all even be alive next Sunday? And it seems harsh, but that's really what James is saying here. And this is the pathway to wisdom, is recognizing how finite and how short and how temporary and how mist-like our lives are. We get used to planning and making decisions for the future. We often forget that we really don't know how much time we have left on this earth. And that knowledge should lead us to plan with a different perspective in mind. And that perspective is given to us in verse 15. This is the second reason to avoid arrogant planning. The battery on my laptop is running out, so I am going to switch to paper notes here. Verse 15, the second reason to avoid arrogant planning is because God is in God is in control, verse 15. Let me read it to you. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James uses this method of sort of a two paths of instruction throughout the book of James. He gives us two types of wisdom in James 3, 13 through 18. There's earthly wisdom and there's heavenly wisdom. And you want to choose earthly, you want to choose heavenly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. But you see that same thing here too, right? There are two ways to approach the future. There are two ways to think about the shortness of your life and to think about tomorrow. And he gives us the first way in verse 13. And here he goes to the opposite way, the other way to plan and to think about the future. And the words that are said here in verse 15 flow from a heart that is perceiving this correctly. This is the proper perspective and the proper way to plan and to live for the future. Notice here in verse 15 that the the person saying these words is still planning for the future, right? I mean, look there in verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. They're still making plans for the future. They're still setting goals in life and approaching the future with with intentionality and with purpose. But the difference in the person in verse 15, the wise planner, is that this person has a different individual at the center of his or her plans. It's not self. And this person makes plans and sets goals, understanding that they are contingent. Every 
plan I set is contingent, it might not happen. These plans in verse 15 are made with dependency on God and not on self. And I want you to notice the way this is phrased. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This person understands that even my life continuing to be alive till next Sunday is dependent on God's will. And if that's true, then certainly the plans that I make and what I intend to do this week, all of those are dependent on God and on his sovereign care and control. And so to plan with this perspective is to acknowledge that God is the ultimate reality in my life. And he determines the course of my life. I can plan all I want, but he's the one that ultimately sets the agenda for my days and hours this coming week. And my job is to rest in that reality. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray this way. Disciples ask Jesus, how do we pray? This is one of the most important requests that he gives in our prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray certainly to ask requests on the Lord for material needs and all of that, but we pray to conform our hearts and our perspectives to God and to his will. We want to want his will to be done in heaven. And when you plan like this in verse 15, and when you pray the Lord's Prayer and understand the implications of that, then you're able to sort of roll with the ups and downs of life. And you're able to do that because God is the one directing my life. And it's not me. And I may plan my day tomorrow. I may block out my hours and decide what I'm going to do during the day, each day this week. But when I do that, I hold those plans with an open hand because I understand that the Lord may have something different for me throughout the course of this week. And since he's the one that is directing my life and setting the agenda for my life, then I know I can trust him because he is good. He's not only powerful and sovereign over life, but he is good and gracious in how he directs the course of my life. I can trust him. I mean, I've always loved Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7. And I want to read those verses to you, but what I've done before is I've eliminated verse 8 from my reading of these, or at least I've glossed over it before, and I want to read that verse with Proverbs 5, 6, 3, 5, 6, and 7 this morning, because it's part of the same paragraph in Hebrew, and it's significant in what happens when we trust in the Lord and plan dependent on Him and not on ourselves. So let me read this passage, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Very familiar to most of you, I'm sure. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then here's verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's interesting. 
That's kind of a strange promise for Solomon to make to us. And I've always sort of ignored that and thought, well, that's odd. How does that fit in with this? But it's there for a reason. And I don't think what Solomon is saying here is that you will never get sick if you just trust the Lord. You'll never have physical ailment if you will just trust the Lord. But I think here's what he's planning. If we stop leaning on our own understanding and on our own wisdom, and we stop making ourselves the center of our planning, and instead we, we recognize the shortness of life and we trust the Lord to direct our steps and acknowledge Him in all our ways, if we do that, and that becomes the disposition of our lives, then we will experience physical refreshment. Solomon understands that, and I've understood this by personal experience, it is a stressful thing to be in charge of your life. And it's a stressful thing to think you're in charge of your life when you can't control a single thing. How terrible is that? I feel responsible, and every hiccup in my plans, I've got to figure out and I've got to respond to. How stressful is that? unnerving would that be to live like that but so many of us do that and we plan that way and we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow and yet we get anxious about it i get anxious about it and physically all of that can destroy us harm us and so solomon is saying here if you give up your own wisdom and your own delusions of control and your own delusions of authority then there is an element of, of physical relaxation that comes from that. God is in control. And that is a great place to be. I make my plans, but the Lord directs my steps. And he's so good and gracious and merciful that I can, I can just completely trust him with that. Now, that's not going to heal you of all of your, your physical problems. It's not going to cure you of cancer. This is no health, wealth, gospel at all. But there is physical refreshment from simply trusting in the Lord his goodness and his kindness. And so back in James, we've seen the, the arrogant planner in verse 13. We've seen the words of the wise planner in verse 15. And now in verse 16, we already looked at this, but we'll go back to it. James is going to comment on the words of the arrogant planner in verse 13. And this is our third reason to avoid prideful or arrogant planning without God. Verse 16 third reason is that we avoid arrogant planning because it's evil. It's actually evil to live this way. Look at verse 16. It's pretty straightforward. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now in scripture, it's not always wrong to boast. Paul uses that same word as saying, I'm going to boast in the Lord. And so boasting is what you put your confidence in and what you're excited about and what's at the center of your life. And so it's not always wrong to boast, but it depends on what you're boasting in that determines whether it's right or wrong. It can be good or bad. But the arrogant planner here, the person who says the words of verse 16, look what he's boasting in. He's boasting in his arrogance. He's boasting in his own perceived control of his life. 
He thinks he's in charge. He thinks he can set the agenda of what he's going to do for the future and where he's going to go and the amount of financial success he's going to have. And so he's confident in his own ability to plan and to execute his plans. He ignores God from his planning. And the Greek word for arrogance here is actually the same word that's used in 1 John 2.16, which describes worldliness to us. Here's what it says. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the, the pride or the arrogance of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so the pride of life or arrogance that we display in our lives is one of the attitudes that defines worldliness. And it's ignoring the Lord's sovereign ordering of life and imagining that I control the course of my life. And that perspective pretty much defines worldliness. I mean, what is the world? The world is the system that results from sinful people living together as if there is no God. They push God out of the way. I think the greatest example of, old, of this in the Old Testament is the Tower of Babel. That's worldliness. Sinful, rebellious people coming together as if there's no God and trying to gain glory for themselves. And so they set up whole systems that encourage this in their sinfulness. They live as if they're not accountable to God or responsible to Him or dependent on Him. Worldliness is human life that is lived trying to remove God from the picture. And James makes it clear here, I think, that people who live like that, who boast in their arrogance, are exhibiting earthly or worldly wisdom. They want to live without God's influence. They want to believe they are in control. And this is not fitting for a follower of Christ. This sort of mentality and perspective fails to honor and worship God as he deserves. And it fails to recognize his divine status as the creator and the king of the universe. And instead, what this perspective does is it says, well, I, I take on divine status. I am in charge. And of course, most of us, or all of us, would never say those words. But we live as if that were as if that were true. And failing to give God his proper due is at the heart of this sin, and that's what James explains explains in our fourth reason in verse 17. So our fourth reason to avoid arrogant planning is because failing to acknowledge God's control or God's authority is sin. Look at verse 17. So Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now when you first read this, it sort of, I think, seems to be out of place. It doesn't seem like it really flows in this passage and fits the logic that James is unfolding here. But keep in mind verse 13. So what I told you about verse 13 is that the problem in verse 13 is not the actual words that were said. It's what the person fails to say, what they fail to include in that. And that's exactly what James is getting at in verse 17. When you speak the words of verse 13, when you have the attitude of verse 13, you are leaving God 
out of the picture. You're failing to do the right thing. You're failing to acknowledge his divine status and control and authority. And that's exactly the point that James is making in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, circumstances come into our lives, like this entire year, then this is a great opportunity to acknowledge God and to do the right thing in those circumstances. But often we fret, right? We worry. We get anxious over the future. We manipulate. We try to to take control of circumstances. We grumble. We do all of those things. We respond that way because deep down we still have this sensation that somehow and I'm responsible. We fail to do the right thing when we don't obey the words of Proverbs 3.6. We acknowledge him in all our paths. He's involved in everything that we do. He's there in every decision we make and his word is influencing every plan that we set for our lives. And what's so amazing, I think, about all this is sent his son to die for our sins. He freely gave us the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could be forgiven and spend eternity in his presence. And we know we can trust him for eternal salvation. He is a God we can trust. And that should spill over into his ordering of our daily lives. Start with that reality of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ sort of work that down to daily circumstances and understand that he is always working for our good. Even in unforeseen events, entire years that have been disrupted by circumstances, 
and he can be trusted with the ordering that he gives to our lives. So I'd like to end this morning by reading you the words to probably my favorite hymn, at least the words of it, not necessarily the tune. Some of my favorite words that I think have ever been penned in a hymn. I think I've read this to you before, but it fits so appropriately with this this morning and thinking about God's sovereign ordering of our lives and how we respond to that and whether we trust his care for us or whether we plan and take control of our own futures and our own lives. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cooper. Here's, the, here's what it says. I'll read the whole thing to you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it clear. Love that. You fearful saints, fresh courage circumstances and events go out of control. We have a rock in the Lord who is willing our lives for his honor and his glory and wrapped up in that is our good. And we can trust him with that. And we can rely on him. And we can rest and relax in his sovereign care for us and for our futures. No matter what happens. That's great. God, you have been so good to us. So merciful, so gracious, and so kind. And you are also so powerful, sovereign, authoritative. your will. We can depend on your will. 